Well, it's good to be back with you all. I want to let you know that there's a kind of uh, connection here because Steve Bell, who was leading us in worship, this guy right here, I known since he was a teenager and before, which was about 20 years ago. I'm just letting you know that, okay? And, uh, and, and the, reason, the other thing that's true is, is that I went down memory lane because I went to the University of Connecticut only about 10 years ago, you know how that works, and uh, majored in existential literature and was recruited to, to on the swim team there. So when I came by North and South Eagleville Road, all sorts of memories come flooding back, you know how this works. So I graduated a long time ago with an absolutely worthless degree. And, and the result was is I decided to work with InterVarsity, mostly in Maine. So newly married with my wife, Joanne, we went to Maine because truth be told, I was tired of reading books and writing papers. So it seemed like campus ministry was a great thing to do. So I want to say I'm very glad to be here. It brings back lots of memories. And I'm also excited for the energy that you all exhibit by being in this new place, beginning of a new year. So on behalf of the Christians that are down southeastern Connecticut, blessings on you guys. Go for it all. Okay. Now there's another curve in the road. And some of you know this because you were here when I was here about a year and a half ago. We've just celebrated the second anniversary of my younger son Keith's death. Okay. He was a family practice physician with the Air Force at Andrews Air Force Base and died of cancer. Uh, in January uh, a couple years ago. Now I say that because I'm letting you know we're part of a fraternity that no one wants to belong to. That's parents who have lost kids. But it also gives you a sense of introduction to a companion along the way who is this interesting character, Jonah. And Jonah's fascinating because one of the things he does is helps me appreciate that God often sends things for me to do that I'm not, I'm sort of reluctant to do. That kind of gives you an idea that in the midst of uncertainty, midst of insecurity, Jonah speaks with startlingly contemporary force. Uh, I want you to follow along. We're going to read uh, chapter one. I'm going to read it out loud. You follow along as we do it. And uh, then we'll make some points and make our way and see what God has to say to us. Jonah chapter one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where are you from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. 
This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he already told them so. Don't you love the little parenthetical expressions? You see? <laughs> By the way, as a lit major, this gets you sailing. I mean, this is great, this is great literature, great storytelling. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea became wilder, grew wilder than even before. Then they cried to the Lord, Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now, you have your outline. You'll see that what I'm, my point here is that Jonah's writing this narrative. I think he's writing the story after the events have taken place, but he lo locates it in the historical present. So it's as if it's happening. And one of the things that we typically do when we read this is we look primarily at Jonah. And today I want to look a, specifically look at the role that God plays in this. And I want to suggest, and I'm using uh, alliteration just to help me remember, that there are four characteristics of God that Jonah wants you to get a hold of. The first two will gloss, the, second will, the third we'll spend some more time on, and the last one we'll use as a prelude to our time of worship. The first is, put it in the thesis statement, that Jonah wants us to understand that the God that he is writing about is a God who, first of all, sees. He sees, in particular, the wickedness of Nineveh. Now, friends, I don't know where you're at with Jesus today. I know you're at with God. But there's a huge pastoral point here. God sees in order to show us what we can't or won't see. God sees. Secondly, God speaks. He not only helps us understand things from his perspective, but he tells us what he's thinking. And the pastoral point here is amazing that when God speaks, he uses the most unlikely of messengers to speak his word, folks like you and me. I'm seeing right away that some of you are getting antsy. You're saying, oh, no, I know where you're going, McCoy. Guilt trip heaven's coming here. I can see where this is going. We'll unpack that a bit, and I want to lay your fears. Thirdly, God sends, and he sends people to help others know who he is and what he asks of them. And finally, God saves. You see, I'm a teacher from way back, and I want you to remember something before you go down the stairs and after you go out to the next thing. Four S's. He sees. He speaks. He sends. He saves. Now, let me unpack this just a bit with you and see if this helps you understand that Jonah is writing something that's amazing. Jonah frames his whole story by a sentence that's verse 2 in our text. First of all, God sees the wickedness of Nineveh. 
Look at verse 2 if you have it in your text or you can remember from way back. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against its why, because its wickedness has come up before me. This statement acts as the primal cause and motivation for the whole book of Jonah. We gloss it. We want to get to the whole point of the storm. We want to see the great movie. But you can't get to what happens to Jonah unless you understand what causes it to happen. And God sees Nineveh's wickedness. Nineveh is the capital city of the 7th century BC, Assyrian rising empire. It's an ugly, violent, it makes ISIS look like fool's play. They typically would come into a village. They would take the leaders of the village and they would flay them alive over the course of four or five days. And then they would take all the members of the village and disperse them to the whole reaches of the empire so that no, it would talk, made ethnic cleansing into a high art form. And God sees this evil. And it, it begs the point because it says two things that are important. First of all, that the problem of evil is a God problem. You see, in our day and age, we would like to locate evil within the dysfunction of the family or the inequity of the state or the willfulness of an enlightened or uneducated soul. And when you start to see evil as one of those coming from some of those sources, then your response is to solve it by means of either therapeutic intervention or some kind of economic redistribution of wealth or by the overthrow of some oppressive political system. But evil has to first of all be located in the fact that it's a God problem. God sees what's going on. And it leads to a second implication. Not only does he see, but he's going to do something about it. And from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, from the beginning of time to the conclusion of it, God is at work to address the evil, both personally, interpersonally, and institutionally. And God will do something about it. God is involved, and God has not only a problem with evil because it's first and foremost and fundamentally against him because he's created the world the way it's supposed to be and we, because he's given us the freedom to, have said, oh, thanks, but no thanks. But God doesn't stop. He's involved with it. Sometimes the most interesting things come when you're smallest. When I was a kid, one of the Sunday school songs that they taught me was, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I was almost threatened to sing it to you today. You're going to be thankful that I didn't, you see. Or, be careful, little hands, what you do. Or, be careful, little feet, where you go. And then the killer, be careful, little mouth, what you say, for the Father up above is what? Looking. Be careful. And the first thing you got to know about Jonah is that God sees what's going on. Can I ask the pastoral point? Do you realize that he sees everything both around you and within you? <laughs> And nothing escapes his vision. 
Do you realize that God sees what's going on in your world and even your future? But he's not doing it to hurl some kind of lightning bolt against you when you blow it, but to help you understand that what he sees, he wants you to see as well. So the courtroom scene is given and the Lord God speaks to Jonah and he says, the wickedness of evil has come up against me. And the God of the universe, this cosmic God sees what's going on. I would ask you the question, ask me the question, what has he shown you? <laughs> Which of course goes to the second point. Not only does he see, but he speaks. Uh, put technically, the God that we serve is a missional God. And he speaks. And the interesting thing about this is that he speaks in an amazing way. He takes a rather obscure prophet, Jonah. We only hear about him one other place in the, New, in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 14. And he's this kind of, and he says, I want you to go 800 miles to the northwest, northeast part. And, and you, I want you to speak against Nineveh. Now, by way of analogy, it would be like God speaking to my good friend, Steve Bell. He kind of looks the prophet part, too, doesn't he? I mean, you've got to admit this, right? I mean, we're both dealing with the lack of hair here. He's more bold to have it here, you know. But it would be like asking Steve to go to Pingyon and speak to Kim Il-jong, North Korea. And we'd say, that's crazy. And two things come out of the choice of Nineveh that speaks to each of us here. The first is the issue of agency. By the way, one of the huge and hot topics in sociological theory is agency theory. And the basic point of it is, is that we know more about the message that's given by whom it's presented or by what means it's presented. We find out more about the character of God by the kinds of people that he uses to speak his message. God speaks and he uses mere mortals like you and me. And we ought not to be deterred by it. The second point has to do with authority. And this is something that Christians often don't get a hold of. They think that the authority comes from the skill or the training or the education or the background. It don't. It comes from the message itself. Jonah has nothing to lead to the compelling nature response of the people of Nineveh, except that it's God that's speaking through him. You understand the point I'm making down the run. You're really smart. You know what's happening. If God could use Jonah, then he could use any of us. In fact, God delights to use the least likely of people and is not deterred by our insecurities, our weakness, our dysfunction, or even our evil. And here comes then the pastoral point. Can I speak to you? Um, if you're not quite sure where you're at with Jesus, tune out for a little bit or listen in, kind of eavesdrop. I'm going to speak to those people here who see yourself as Jesus followers. Do you understand that when God speaks to you, it's just not for you, it's for someone else? <laughs> And the real question becomes, as God shows us stuff so we can see, God speaks to us so we can speak. 
illustration. In the ancient world, when, particularly in Greece, when a, a, a king or a military commander wanted to send a secret message to his commander in the battle zone somewhere along, he would pick a random slave. And he would take the slave and he would take, cut off all his hair and he would tattoo the message on the guy's scalp. And they'd wait for the hair to grow. In my case, they would have to wait a long time, you see. But I mean, most of the time, it grew back. And then he would send the slave to the place where the message was with the instruction, shave my head. And the message would be revealed. You note the analogy. That for the rest of that slave's life, he bore on his skull the tattoo of the secret message. Friends, God has not only shown us stuff, but he's spoken to us and he's imprinted his message on the soul of our hearts so that we carry it in the way we speak to others. And I'm asking myself and I'm asking you today, to whom is God sending you? <laughs> and I believe that as I speak, the Spirit of God speaking too. And I'm asking the question, and you probably have this interior monologue going on with Jesus right now. And he's either oh, neighbor that I should have talked to, or a person at work, or a classmate, or, you know, next week is Super Bowl Sunday, and you get to hear me one more time in the second half of Jonah. Well, the guy's kind of dumb and bald, but you know, come and visit, you know, how this works, you see? If not for me, for the great people here who evidence by their very diversity the greatness and diversity of God. So much for the context. Well, we all know what Jonah does. God shows him stuff, God sends him, and Jonah says, thanks but no thanks, and takes off. What's fascinating is you read the text here. As you read what's going on, Jonah's rebellion doesn't seem to catch God by surprise. <laughs> and so in some ways, and this is where the lit part of me just gets real excited, in some ways what's happening is that God already has anticipated what's happening. And God is ascending God, and he sends three categories of events basically geared to help Jonah wake up and realize you're supposed to be what you're proclaiming not to be. What's the first thing he sends? Well, he sends this great wind that becomes a storm. Now, we could probably say that long before the storm ever arrived, the barometric lows and the meteorological issues were probably already at work. But Jonah's not interested in mechanics. He's interested in meaning. And he's saying somewhere along the line that God had a plan and he sent the wind and the storm to get Jonah's attention. Jonah's trying to deny it. He's going down and he's in a guilt-induced or even he's, he's forgotten about it all. He's sound asleep. You can run away from God and think things are fine. But the storm comes and it shakes the very timbers of the ship. And underneath it, what God's saying is, if the atmospheric phenomenon obey my command, to get the attention of people in this boat, so ought you, Jonah. You should be like the wind going to Nineveh to get the attention of a people who by means of their evil 
don't care about God at all. The second thing that God sends is he sends these pagan sailors. Don't you love them? Don't they act nobly? And the ironies abound. The captain comes down to Jonah and he shakes Jonah up and he says, wake up. Pray to your God. And the captain and the sailors, they don't even want to do what Jonah tells them. They have exemplary faith in a God they hardly know. And God is saying to Jonah, that's exactly the way you should be speaking and acting toward the people of Nineveh. Wake up. Pray to your God. And isn't it the case that sometimes the people that speak with greatest clarity are the ones that either know them the least or don't know them at all? And the last thing that God sends is he sends this great fish that swallows Jonah whole because God's going to get, going to get Jonah right where he wants him. <laughs> now, let me be clear here. The sending action of God as it compares to who Jonah is, is meant to get Jonah's attention, model Jonah's behavior, and ultimately recognize that God's in charge even of the animals, the creative work of, uh, in the world. And if God is in charge of this sort of thing, then he wants to be in charge of your life, and you should act in the same way, consistent with the way people do. Crystal clear. I'm not suggesting that when People who believe in Jesus do something wrong. God's going to zap them. God's grace and mercy sometimes extends for generations to people who do what's wrong. And Christians are known to be incredibly boorish at best and sometimes outright evil at worst. But what I am suggesting is that God has so much invested in this message getting to Nineveh that he will send anything he can to get the attention of his messenger to deliver that message in the way he wants. You're not supposed to go down the street and say to God, okay, God, if I'm supposed to speak to my roommate that all the red lights will be green in the next mile. It's, it's, we don't live in a magical universe. But what I am saying is God has a lot invested, if you're a believer in Jesus, to make sure that his message gets to the right place. And our God not only sends wayward messengers, but he sends a whole constellation of things to get our attention and remind us of what we're supposed to be about. God sends so that we can be sent Uh, can I give you an illustration of this? Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, I'm involved with a group of men that meet for Bible study on Wednesday nights. And one of the guys that's come is an interesting guy. He's not, I, I think he's on the road to becoming a believer in Jesus. Uh, tough situation. Uh, he's lost two sons to the opioid epidemic. One who was at 26, the other 33. Uh, it's a scourge in our area. I don't know how it is up here. We've had five families in our church who have lost kids because of overdosing. And we're wrestling hard with it. In any event, I got to know Steve, uh, and obviously the loss of my son means that I've got some street cred. You know how this works? You know, So we talk, and he can't play the victim card on me. But, and so we were reading a book 
and in our study, we, we read this great book by Kyle Eidemann called The End of Me. Distinctive cover. You can see it a mile away. You see how that works, okay? And so he comes into the study a couple Wednesdays ago and he says, uh, any of you go to Old Lyme Tennis Club? Most of us in the group don't even know where Old Lyme Tennis Club is. He says, well, I was there last night and there was a guy who was reading the book sitting right next to me. We're watching some high school kids play tennis. Well, I mean, you can see it. There's not many books like this unless Chairman Mao's book has been republished. I know how that works. You know, it's just that kind of thing. So he says, not, none of us, we didn't know anything about that. He says, it must be a hot book. And I remember Steve's on the way. He's not quite sure where God's at in all this, how God's going to deal with this thing. Five minutes later, another guy who was invited by one of the regular members comes, and he's got the book, and he sits down right next to Steve. And Steve looks at him, and he says, do you have a kid who plays tennis, old line tennis club? Yeah, I was there last night. And all of a sudden, it's the twilight zone. How can God arrange 30 miles away the two guys who didn't even meet each other the night before looking at the same book and now studying it together? You see, God sends things into people's lives to get their attention. And if we were here for a bit, we would say, ah, you have stories like that yourself. Because God is at work in structuring the events of life so that he will use us as messengers to the people around us. I don't know about the scope of your life. I can speak with relative impunity today. But God isn't finished with you. Your legacy is still in, in, in flux, so to speak. But I want to encourage you. Are you willing to be part of the great sending mission of God? Well, let me conclude. The last thing God does is he saves. We didn't look at it in particular, but in chapter 2, Jonah makes this great song of thanks and praise. And at the end of chapter 2, he makes this interesting statement, Jonah 2, verse 8. It says this, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Well, not look at, at, at the nature of the, 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 the song that Jonah sings. I think what Jonah does retrospectively is he takes Old Testament Psalms. Almost every verse in Jonah 2 is a reworking of one of the Old Testament Psalms. Okay? So he uses the hymns and the songs of the Psalter to structure or give words to the things he's feeling. And then he comes to this salient point. He says that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And two questions emerge from that that are pertinent for us this morning. One is the audience. Who are the those that cling to worthless idols? Is Jonah thinking about the sailors and the captain on the ship? Is he thinking about the Ninevites to whom God will send him again? I think those are possibilities, but one of the things I really think is the case is he's talking about himself. <laughs> And the interesting thing as Christians is it's easy for Christians to be idolatrous and to worship other things than Jesus. And when you do that, when you exalt something other than God and make an idol of it, you forfeit the grace that could be yours. 
Sometimes it's easy to even idolatry, make an idol of my service for Jesus. Sometimes I can make an idol of my reputation, my skill, my verbal acumen. And Jonah says, if you cling to that, you forfeit the grace that God longs to show to you and help you live through to show to others. Why is that so important? Well, it implies an invitation. You see, the thing that's distinctive about Christianity is the fact that it's a grace-driven religion. <laughs> Every other religion is works-based. But we come this day to celebrate the fact that Jesus died and we didn't have anything to do with it except be complicit in the guilt that made him die. And when we take the elements, we're proclaiming and showing forth to the angels above and to everyone else that we are people who have received the grace that God longs to give. Let me sum up. Teacher in me, class, quiz at the end. No, all that kind of stuff, you see. The God that Jonah wants us to understand is a God who's typified by four actions. He's, first of all, the God who sees in order to show us what we either can't or won't see. Secondly, he's the God who speaks, and he delights in giving a great message to lowly messengers. Third, He's the God who sends, not only us, but when we don't do it, he sends other things around us to get us back on track. <laughs> and finally, he's the God who saves, and he offers grace upon grace upon grace, week by week, day by day, moment by moment. Uh, closing illustration. Uh, I mentioned before that one of the good things that's happened as a result of my son's death is we're getting to spend time with his kids. And one of those kids is Caleb. He's four years old, and he spends an overnight with us once a week. Great stuff. A couple months ago, Caleb arrived for his overnight, but he was missing bear. Now, most of you know that there are beasts in children that are important because they provide a good night's sleep. And they're not only important for the grandchildren, they're desperately important for the grandparents. But Bear was not in the luggage. He wasn't under the bed. We called home. Bear was not back at his house. Bear was missing. We did not know where Bear had gone. And of course, the index of the crisis meter is starting to get high at this. You're with me, correct? I mean, you can, even if you're not a grandparent, you understand how the, so maybe some of you have a bear. I don't know how it works. Okay. So it was incumbent on me. My name's Bebo to my grandchildren because my oldest son tried to get his kid to call me Bald Bob. And, and, and what came out was Bebo. So that's my name, okay? I'm letting you know. It was incumbent on Bebo to find out whether Caleb had left bear at preschool. And if that's the case, of course, Bear could be anywhere. So we took the trip, and lo and behold, we found Bear, and I brought Bear back to Caleb. And his response was priceless. 
Friends, we got something much bigger than bear. We have something that the world is craving, even if it doesn't know it. What sacrifice, which is not a sacrifice at all, will you go through to mimic the God who sees, speaks, sends, and saves? Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we're about to enter into your most holy presence. We're about ready to say to you, Lord, we love you, and we're thankful for your work in our lives. Being the God of Jonah 1 encourages us to be the people that Jonah wasn't. Would you allow us to reflect the great grace that you long to give us day by day? We'll give you thanks in the name of Jesus. And all God's people will say, Amen.